Well, good morning again, everybody, and welcome to worship. Now, not only to those of you who are here in our contemporary service, but welcome also to those of you who are joining us right now in our traditional sanctuary and also via broadcast. I'm glad that we have this chance to be together as one church family and learn from God's Word together. And In fact, speaking of learning from God's Word together, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading the Bible together during this time. And if you don't have one with you and you'd like to use one, our ushers will be coming up the aisle in just a minute with Bibles, and you can borrow one during this worship service and just stick it on the rack of the table at the back of the worship venue again after this service, and you can use it during this hour. And I want to say Happy Easter, too, by the way. Happy Easter, everybody. Thank you, because it's still Easter, right? Still Easter, yeah. A lot of our calendars said that Easter was last week, and, and that's true. Easter Sunday was last Sunday, wasn't it? We didn't forget that. It was Easter Sunday last Sunday, but it's the season of Easter right now. And all this year, we've kind of been doing a special thing. We have a special emphasis here at First Lutheran in trying to learn from the traditional, the, the ancient resource of the Christian year that just helps us grow as followers of Jesus. And it's really great that Easter is not just a day. It's great that Easter is a season because we need a little bit of time to kind of recalibrate and adjust and learn what does it mean to live in response to the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. I think one great way to read the stories of Jesus' resurrection is to see the early disciples, the first disciples of Jesus, who said, man, Jesus is alive. We've got work to do. We've got stuff to do now. And that's something we want to talk about during this Awake series. We're starting a new sermon series actually last week and start kind of continuing this week called Awake, where we are waking up to life in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before we even get to the things that that means that we would do and the kinds of you know, commitment or courage or vision that God would give us for life in the power of life, there's someplace else we need to start. And we're going to return today to the stories of the empty tomb of Jesus. And there's something in those stories that I am very prone to miss. In fact, I think I missed it probably the first hundred or so times that I read these stories until somebody pointed it out to me. I mean, I knew it was there, but I never knew how important it was. It's really important, and it's really powerful. I think it has the power to shape our souls in deep and meaningful and lasting ways, and I don't want to miss it anymore. I want to share it with you this morning. But before we get there, I want to talk to you a little bit about the way that we approach these stories, kind of where we're coming from in life. And i got to tell you about myself, first of all, I'm somebody who has a very strong bias toward action. I mean, I, I love productivity. I love getting stuff done. Those of you who know me well, this shocks you, I know, but it's true. I love to get stuff done. I remember, uh, I'm a child of the 80s, by the way. There's, there's therapy for that, but I'm not finished with it. I'm a child of the 80s. I'm hoping to recover. There was, uh, there was a movie back in the 80s, and I'm going to ask you to admit this. Did any of you ever see the movie way back when called The Secret of My Success? Did you see that? Do you remember it at all? Michael J. Fox movie, some of you are willing to admit that. Good for you. You're brave. That's the kind of Christian courage we're talking about here. To make a long story endless, the, uh, the movie, The Secret of My Success, the kind of the action takes place in a high-powered corporate environment. And there's this one scene where one of the executives at this company, her name is Christy Wills, and she's obsessively productive. She's so efficient and effective. And, and one of the other people is there, and this guy isn't doing anything at that moment. And he's just kind of annoying her and getting in her way. And she blurts out at him. She's like, are you standing still for some purpose? <laughs> and I was 12 years old when that movie came out. But that, I, that, that made sense to me even then. Like, if you're going to stand still, you ought to accomplish something. I have a strong bias toward action. And I may be a little bit on kind of one end of the spectrum on this, I understand, but I think this is rather common in our culture. I think this is kind of the world that we live in. We are busy, we are fast, we are productive. If you want to say something nice about somebody, oftentimes you'll say how efficient or effective they are, what a go-getter they are, you know? 
Many of you in your places of business, you have to do more all the time than you did before. You have to do more next quarter. You have to do more next year. You know you'll have to do more the year after that than you were doing before it. And you may have less and less resources to work with. That's just tough. you got to do more because we are in a culture that values doing above all else. Very, very productive, very active. This applies to us in our families, parents. You feel this pressure all the time. Sign your kids up for one more thing and then two more things after that. And the reason that we feel that pressure, the reason that we want to sign them up for everything is because we don't want them to miss any opportunity. We care about them. We love them. We want the most for their lives. And because of our cultural blinders, what that means for us is we think, well, then we got to do more. If we care, it means more activity. And so in general, maybe not in every case, maybe not every person, but in general, we find ourselves just trying to shove everything we can into the 24-hour period that we call each day. We fill it up to the max, and then if we could, we would add more hours today and fill those too. But because we can't, we just return to the 24 we've got, and we just lay in a second level of stuff to do on top of it. And maybe a third or a fourth. This generation has invented a new word. Do you know the word I'm thinking of? Multitasking. That's right. We expect our technology to multitask. We expect our brains to multitask. I've read some studies on this. Brain scientists say we actually can't. We're terrible at multitasking. But we keep trying. We'll just keep on trying. Because God forbid that we would ever do one thing at one time. Right? We have this very strong bias toward maximal activity and maximal productivity. And I share that too. And there's some good things about that. There, we can accomplish a lot. We do some good things in God's world because of that. And a lot of our response to the resurrection of Jesus, living awake to the life where there is life, actually is active. So it's not all bad. But there's a real potential for danger in this if we don't handle this correctly. There is the danger that we will make ourselves a mile wide and an inch deep. And I don't know about you, but I'm not trying to get any wider. Are you trying to get wider? <laughs> this is just going to make us shallow. It doesn't make us deeper. It, ha it has the potential. It can profit us. It, can, it is profitable for our productivity and for our portfolios. But it has the power to impoverish our souls. It just makes us run faster and faster and faster. And I don't know about you, but I, for one, would like to have the confidence that I'm running in the right direction if I'm going to run that hard. We have a very strong bias toward action and productivity, but there's some danger that goes with that. And I think, fortunately, the Bible has some really helpful things to say about this for us, particularly in the very first and the earliest stories of the empty tomb. And what I would like to do today is, is talk to you about and look at some examples of the very first reactions that the first witnesses to Jesus' empty tomb had. And what maybe you'll be surprised to see, and maybe you've seen there before, or, but maybe surprised to notice, is that the reaction was, in every case, fear. They were afraid when they first encountered the empty tomb. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were perplexed. The Bible says they were bewildered. I think maybe if I could think of one single word to sum up that whole network of reactions they were having at one time, I would say that word is wonder. They were experiencing this kind of holy wonder. And so the first thing that the disciples of Jesus did, that the, the women who followed Jesus who came to the tomb and the, and the men who got to the tomb after the women told them they should come and look at the tomb, the first thing they did was they didn't go tell other people. The first thing they did was they didn't change their lives. They didn't go change their world. All those things came soon enough, and they needed to come. But the first thing they did was this, the first thing they did was they had this experience of wonder. And I think it would be really wise for us to follow their example, to look at the examples of what they experienced, and to cultivate a sense of holy wonder in our own lives. 
So let me just show you some examples here. If you have your Bible with you, you can get that out right now or, or turn it on, and we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 28. If you have the Quest Bibles that are here in both of our worship venues, this is on page 1461, if that helps you find the passage. And we're just going to look at the stories of the empty tomb again from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Just some very brief examples here. And in Matthew 28, it says that the, the women were coming to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, which they assumed was still in the tomb, and they were going to anoint it with spices to cover the odor of, of death. But when they got there, an angel, an angel of the Lord, had rolled the stone away from the front of the tomb, and there were guards at the tomb. And this is what it says in Matthew 28, verse 3. His appearance, that is this angel of the Lord, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. They just passed out. They fainted. I don't, I've never met a first century Roman soldier or guard, but I'm guessing they didn't pass out from fear all the time. And I'm guessing that's because they didn't very often encounter powers that were greater than theirs. I'm guessing they didn't feel out of control very often. But here they were up against this power, this something that was operating in the world that was way beyond their control. And the first thing they felt in response to that was fear. But then listen to the next verse. This is Matthew 28, verse 5. Then the angel said to the women who had come to the tomb, Don't be afraid. Do not, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And just think for a second. The angel says, Don't be afraid, not because the power that's at work here isn't greater than you, because it is. Not because there's something that's happening here that isn't beyond your control, because it's way beyond your control. And yet the angel tells them not to be afraid. I think what we see here is just a one great example of what the Bible elsewhere calls the fear of the Lord, the holy fear of God, or what one Christian writer has said, fear without being scared. It's just this reverence, this holy awe at the amazing power of God that is above us and beyond us and, and out of our control. And, and then at the end of this little episode here, it says in, in Matthew 28, 8, it concludes by saying, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, that's an interesting mixture, isn't it? They were afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. They went away with this mixture of holy fear and joy all at the same time. And then just take a look for a second here at the story of the resurrection, the story of the empty tomb in the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark 16. It's on page 1493 if you've got one of our quest Bibles here. I just want to show you some of the same elements of the story. In Matthew 16, 5, it says, As they entered the tomb, this is the women who were there, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. They were alarmed. Other English translations of this passage say they were amazed. And the word that's being translated there is a common Greek word. It's common in one particular context. It's common in stories where people understood themselves to be having an encounter with the supernatural with an encounter with a power that was greater than themselves or above themselves and out of their control. And that's what they were experiencing. They went in, they had this mixture of being alarmed and amazed. And then at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 16, chapter 8, he says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I mean, I've read these stories of the empty tomb probably hundreds of times, and if you would ask me, were they afraid when they got I said, yeah, that's what it says. But I never paid a lot of attention to that as an important element in these stories before. I think because it didn't go anywhere very productive. You know, I was trying to get on with the action of the scene. But just look at one more example with me here from the Gospel of Luke now. This is Luke chapter 24. If you've got the Quest Bibles, this is page 1549, and it goes over onto page 1550 at the end there. And I just want to read a little bit longer passage to you here. This is 
Luke 24 and verses uh, 2 through 5 says, tells the same story. They, that is the women who were coming to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? And then Luke's account ends in a very similar sort of setting to Matthew and Mark's. And I just want to read you Luke 24, 9 through 12. After the women had this encounter at the tomb, they went back. So when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11. That's the 12 disciples minus Judas. They told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. All three of these stories of the empty tomb climax or end in the same way. Matthew said the women went away from that scene filled with fear and joy all at the same time. Mark said they couldn't even tell anybody right away because they were afraid. Luke tells us that even Peter had the same experience, that he went in and saw the empty tomb and he walked away wondering to himself, what on earth has happened here? And maybe the reason they were so filled with wonder and holy awe and fear is that they realized it wasn't simply what on earth has happened here, but what in heaven's name, what in heaven and on earth has happened here. And if, if we were going to read the, the full picture, if we were going to try to see the whole picture of Jesus' resurrection and read all these stories, we would have to keep on going from here. We couldn't stop here yet. We'd have to read about the rest of the appearances that Jesus made to other people and to other crowds. We'd want to read the story of Jesus ascending in power to sit in authority at the right hand of God. We'd want to read the story of Jesus pouring out his spirit on the community of his followers at Pentecost. I think we should just keep right on reading and read about all the deeds of power and the life change and the courage and all the things that the followers of Jesus did and how they acted because of what they knew, how they woke up to life in the resurrection of Jesus. I, I think the story of Jesus' resurrection, just got to keep right on going if you want to get the whole picture. But today, let's not look at the whole picture just yet. Today, let's just pause right here and see this little snapshot, what the disciples did first before they went on and did all those other things, before all the rest of their activity. They had to come face to face with the activity of God. They had to come face to face with the, the untamable, unleashed power of God that had been let loose in the world and the dead people don't stay dead anymore. And something very powerful was at work in the world and it filled them with wonder before they did anything else. You know, if that weren't true, if God hadn't acted first, if it, if it weren't for this thing at which they marveled and wondered, man, nothing else that happened next would have mattered. And nobody would have wrote it down. We wouldn't even know what it is if God hadn't raised Jesus from the dead. If God hadn't raised Jesus from the dead, then nothing else that happens next has any importance at all. Everything else that we do is, as someone said to me once, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You just decorate all you want, it's still going down into the deep, dark cold. If God has not raised Jesus from the dead, then the power of sin wins in this world and it reigns over our lives. If God has not raised Jesus from the dead, then sin wins, violence wins, might makes right. 
The power of addiction wins in our lives. Darkness wins. Hopelessness wins. Envy wins. Anger wins. Unforgiveness wins. All the things that tear our relationships and our lives apart, that just reigns. You know what else happens if Jesus has been raised from the dead? Some of us win and some of us lose, which means that all of us lose as a people together. If God has not raised Jesus from the dead, then death wins. And it's a closed system that we live in. And we already know how every story ends. Just game over. May as well go home. But if God has raised Jesus from the dead, if the untamable power of God has been unleashed into the world, then we don't know how every story ends. The system is not closed. God is at work creating new things, opening up new endings to stories. The power of sin has not won, and it does not win. And so violence doesn't win, might doesn't make right, unforgiveness doesn't win, bitterness doesn't win, envy doesn't win. It means that our past is not our future. Praise God for that, huh? It means that God is creating a new future for us and that God is creating a new future for his world. It is full of grace and it's full of, full of hope and a world full of all new possibilities that we have not imagined yet because the power of God is beyond our control. And we're not going to be able to leverage the resurrection or maximize the resurrection or take advantage of the resurrection because it is the power of God that is at work in us. And what God does in us, we receive and we wonder at and we marvel at and we grow in because he has worked in us. And so before we can even get on to the rest of this Awake series, before we can read the rest of the stories, before we can continue to think about the things that God calls us to do or the ways that he calls us to act in response to what he has done, I think the first thing that we need to do, if you will, is to stand still for this purpose. Is to stand still with maybe jaws a little bit dropped, maybe heads a little bit shaken, just perplexed, and wonder and holy fear and awe at what the power of God has unleashed in the world. And, and this is not going to be easy for us because our whole culture is anti-wonder. Right? We, we are against this. We, we have worked against being amazed, being surprised, being oppressed or impressed or experiencing wonder. And I think if we're going to recultivate the capacity for wonder in our lives, and you know, really, I don't think it's even possible for us to worship God if we don't have the capacity for wonder. If we don't, we can't worship God in song. We can't worship God in prayer. I don't think we really can bring glory to God in lives of service or commitment or love or sacrifice. If we haven't, if God hasn't recreated in us this capacity to wonder and marvel and receive and, and worship his power. And I think if the capacity to wonder is going to be recultivated in us, it's going to take God's work in our lives. And I just I want to think with you right now about a couple different ways that maybe the Spirit of God is working in our hearts and in our lives to recreate this ability to wonder at his power. So I just want to make a couple suggestions. And as I, as I make these suggestions or share some ideas with you, if, if you feel the Spirit of God prompting your heart to some sort of next step or growth in that area, I just encourage you to pay attention to that and take that next step. The first thing I want to ask you, the first idea is really just comes in the form of a question. And the question is this. What is it that has ever caused you to experience wonder in your life? When have you felt amazed or experienced a sense of wonder? I, I remember this time, oh, some years ago, that I was standing on a kind of a rocky outcropping over the Pacific Ocean and looking out at the vast expanse that went on for more miles than I could calculate and the, the almost immeasurable force and power that was in this water that swayed back and forth. 
as I looked down. And I had a friend who was there with me, and this friend of mine, he said, I'm getting that small and insignificant feeling again. You know, the Bible says that none of us are insignificant in God's eyes. But I do think that taking a moment to marvel even at the power of God's amazing creation and, and then marvel even more at the even greater power of the one who called it into being, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Or I remember a couple years ago I was reading this article, and the article was partly about a, a guy named Daryl Falk who happens to be a Christian biologist. And, and in the article there was a quotation from him, and I, I brought it along for you because it made an impact on me, and I think some of you might be impacted by this also. This was something that he said. He said, I remember when I discovered the beauty of genetics. When I saw how the cell worked, it was unbelievably beautiful. Thousands of protein molecules intricately folded, each doing a particular job in the cell. And this astonishing process was going on in every one of my trillions of cells, making me who I am. Forty years later, I'm still in love with that. Never gets old, never loses its appeal. That's the language of wonder. And I think it sounds not unlike the language of worship. And if you worship the proteins in the cells, that reduces your capacity for wonder. But if awe and wonder at God's creation moves you to marvel and wonder at the creator himself, I think God is honored by that worship. I just ask you to consider what are the things or what experiences have you had that move you to wonder? Is it gazing up at the night sky? Is it maybe looking down or across into the eyes of a child? What is it that creates that wonder in you? And, and if you know what that is, I would say stay close to that. You know, look at that. Explore that. Learn all you can. Experience it as much as you can. Not learn about it and explore it in such a way so that you can gain mastery over it and put it to use to some particular end in the way that we often learn and explore things. But, I mean, just explore so that you can see how truly wondrous and marvelous it really is. What cultivates that wonder for you? All right, a second question for you, moving in really a completely different direction. Are there any practices of Sabbath rest in your life? Is there any Sabbath in your life? Is there any time, any practice where you remember to stop the work that you're doing so that you can remember to depend on the work that God is doing? I ask it that way because a few years ago, we did a worship series on spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that could help us grow as disciples of Jesus. And one of the things that I learned during that series was to pay attention to this dimension of Sabbath practices. I think I had usually thought of Sabbath rest, whether that's a Sabbath day or something like that. I had usually thought of that as just kind of a, a healthy rhythm of life that makes us ourselves maybe physically or emotionally healthier, makes our relationships in better balance and helps us live healthier and more productive, maybe even longer lives in the long run. And I, I think that's all true. But what I learned at that time was how important Sabbath is as a humbling practice, how much it reminds us of the limits and finitude of ourselves and our own power. Because you take some time and you stop doing all the critically important things that you're doing all the time, and, and much to your surprise, God's world just keeps right on going without you. God's power just keeps right on working, even when you've put yours to rest for a little while. You know, I, I told you about my strong bias toward action, and won't surprise you to know that when I wake up in the morning, it doesn't take very long before my mind is filled with the awareness of three days of work that I want to do before lunch, and I'm making a list in my head, and I'm ready to go. I'm sure a lot of you find yourselves in the same sort of busyness in life. And one of the things that I find is really important for me, and I, I find that I struggle when I don't do this, is that it's important for me to take five, 10, 30 minutes 
to set my productivity aside, to not get off to a good start in the day or not a productive start in the day, but rather take that time to pay attention to the work of God, the work that God wants to do in me or that God's doing in the world without me or that God wants to do through me, to read my Bible and pray and listen and reflect. That's an important Sabbath practice for me. In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of laws that guided God's people Israel into a Sabbath day every seven days and a Sabbath year every seven years and a Jubilee year every seven groups of seven years. And God's people Israel in the Old Testament experienced those laws as a blessing. I'm not asking you necessarily to impose a new law on your life or embrace some sort of new legalism, but just to ask what kind of practice like that might help you focus on and remember the greater power of God that's at work in our lives. Because really, if it's not God that's at work in our lives, then we may as well just go home anyway. Unless the Lord builds the house, they that build the house labor in vain, says the Bible. Are there any Sabbath practices in your life? And then the third thing that I want to say about this, the third practice maybe that I think can help cultivate a sense of Christian wonder and receptivity in our lives is an ancient Christian practice commanded by Jesus himself, and that is the sharing in the Lord's Supper that we're going to share together in all of our worship services today. When we do that, we're going to remember the words that Jesus himself spoke to his very first disciples at the last meal that he shared with them at his last supper. And we're going to remember those words and learn from them and be reminded of the work of God, the work that God has accomplished in Jesus for us. Be reminded that God has accomplished the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness of our wrongdoing, our rebellion against the will of God, the ways that we have acted hurtfully toward each other and toward God. Be reminded that God encounters us with grace and forgiveness and the power to restore and heal us and send us in a new direction. And we're reminded in this meal of the power of God to create a community, to call into being a people made up of individuals who otherwise just run away from each other. That God reconciles relationships that we have broken. That God creates relationships of brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ that we would just never bother to create in the first place. But by his power, he does that in us. And so when we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes in both of our worship venues, I hope this will be an experience that reminds you that the center of all the other responding that we do to God in our lives, at the center of that is the response of receiving. It's the response of receiving what God has already done for us. So I'd invite you at that point when you come forward to share in the Lord's Supper, to come forward in a, a spirit of wonder, a spirit of holy reverence and thanksgiving, gratitude for what we could not have done, never could have done, and probably would never do on our own, but a receiving of what God has done in our lives. And, and my hope is that each week when we gather for worship and here around the Lord's table today and in worship and every time we gather to worship and pray together, that this could be a little bit of practice for how we live the rest of our lives, that we could build these habits of worship and awe and receiving, and it would shape the way that we live outside this place also. Because I know that we've got a lot to do. We've got a lot to do in God's name as disciples of Jesus, and we need to get to it. But before we do any of that, we need to just stand still for this purpose, to receive what God is doing by his power that is just beyond our control, and praise God that it is. I just want to lead us in a, in a prayer to close this time of reflection on God's word. And could I invite you just to do something a little different today? Just put your hands out like this, kind of put your hands out open in a, a, a symbolic way of receiving God's work and, and laying our own power down. Let's just pray together. God, we receive you. We, we are in awe of you. We worship you. 
You have done what we could never do. We, we can't manufacture the resurrection of the dead. We can't leverage or maximize the resurrection. That's your work in our lives, and we receive it. In fact, God, I pray that you would help us maybe just pry our hands open so that we would lay down our work sometimes and, and stand with wonder and awe and worship before yours. I pray, God, that you would cultivate in us what feels unnatural to us, this sense of worship that we have so banished from our lives. Work in us and fill us with your spirit. Make us receivers of your power. And then by your spirit, send us out to do all that you've commanded us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.